You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com, sitting alongside, as always, Ben Folks from MMA Junkie and USA Today. Ben, how are you doing this week? Are you coming down from the amazing high of going to see big-time wrestling at the minor league ballpark on Friday night? You know, I'm going to be honest with you here. After I, I left the Osprey Park where we watched Big Papa Pump do his thing, wearing some chain mail. Uh, Defeat Gangrel in the main event via submission. Steiner recliner. Watched Scotty Too Hotty naturally get up there in a pair of uh, blue camouflage pants and do the worm. Like you do? I was like, I'm covering the wrong sport. I'm, I've, I've wasted my life. That's what I said to myself. It's a crazy, crazy high going to see big-time wrestling at the minor league baseball stadium in Missoula, Montana. Uh, can we talk briefly, though, about the thing that stuck with me the most from the big-time wrestling event? Sure. And that was the woman who worked the second match of the evening who was basically doing a, a straight-up hardcore black power gimmick. It was awesome. In the most... Uh, confusing way possible i guess you mean when she walked out and screamed at the crowd of montanans what's wrong you've never seen a black woman before first things first actually the weirdest part to me uh because i don't think we're telling anybody anything they don't already know to suggest that there was some uh some racial stereotyping going on at a small time indie wrestling event uh, that there were some very familiar tropes at work there, uh, that no one was reinventing the wheel. So I wasn't necessarily surprised to see any of these sort of gimmicks being employed there at big time wrestling. Uh, it was a little weird during the match though, like before she would do a move, she would say stuff like, this is for Trayvon Martin. Yep. And then she would stomp on her opponent or she would say, this is for Baltimore. And then she would stomp on her opponent. And she was really, really obviously being booked as the heel in the match. Didn't work. The bad guy. And so it was just very strange. I, nobody was sure exactly how they were supposed to feel about it when the person who was obviously supposed to be the bad guy says, this is for Trayvon Martin and then stomps on her opponent. Like, how are we supposed to react to that? Are we just supposed to be like, boo, boo? It, it didn't seem to work at all. People seemed really into it. And maybe I'm just talking about the people in our immediate vicinity, including uh, one of our friends who kept yelling, fuck yeah, over and over again. And it was like, well... Her her attempt to be the heel here has not has failed spectacularly. Where I thought they made a mistake is if they're going to do the like race politics gimmick in this the only women's pro wrestling match of the evening, and they booked the woman doing the black power gimmick against like I'm gonna say a a Middle Eastern looking woman from build us being from somewhere in California. Which right. if you're gonna do that stuff in Montana and you're gonna have the the black power heel, she needs to wrestle a redhead named Mary O'Malley from Butte. And that's that's how you do that. Am I wrong here? The whole thing was was booked somewhat strangely. Uh, I guess almost, you gotta work with what you have if you're big time. No, exactly. Almost like they hadn't put a lot of thought into it prior to the bell. 
Well, at least we did get to see a uh, a judo master, as I believe he was. Billed, that's right. The uh, guy that Scotty Duhati defeated uh, was billed as a judo master. Had some great uh, judo kicks. Yeah, through some pretty uh, textbook judo punches. I think during this bout, but yeah. eventually, uh, you know, succumbed to the worm. As <laughs> as a judo master will do. A lot of people don't know this, but the one inherent weakness in the judo style is the worm. The thing that afterwards when I was talking about this event with my wife and she was like, did Chad actually pay $25 for that autographed picture of Scott Steiner? And yeah, I, and a picture of myself with Big Papa Pump. It's not like I only got the autograph. <laughs> okay, well, I'm sure that would really change her mind there. Um, because after I told her yes... Chad Chad took money out of his wallet and gave it to Scott Steiner. Straight cash, homie. <laughs> she she opined that perhaps Chad was there a little less ironically than you were. Um maybe, I don't know. <laughs> I I came in it was no, you know what though? Like I, when I go to the small time wrestling event, I go in with the same a similar mindset as when you go to Las Vegas where you're like, "Okay, I'm going to spend way too much money. Like I'm just going to uh, I'm going to come away with this. The last thing I want to do is like keep my eye on the bottom line. I'm just going to be handing people <laughs> cash everywhere I go, and I'm just going to enjoy the ride. We have different mindsets when it comes to going to Las Vegas, clearly. Well, that could be. But I guess we should move on. We got, uh, we got a lot to talk about this week. Ben, new UFC heavyweight champion. Another UFC event on deck uh, coming up next weekend. So three round three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast in round number one. At this point, I feel like the only thing we can confidently say about the UFC heavyweight champion, whoever that is, is that they won't be champion two or three fights from now. And in round number two at UFC 188 on Saturday, Eddie Alvarez put on a clinic of how to turn this sport into a silly ass, undependable ass game, even while you get your whole shit broke. (laughs) And in round number three, so Kimbo versus Shamrock one week out, and we still have every reason to believe that that is happening. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener ba- mail comes from uh, Tyler Pebley, or Tyler Peebly, depending on how you pronounce it. I bet it's Pebley. Uh, he writes, Ben and Danny Downs in their awesome trading shots column. Thank you. Barf. Uh, briefly touched on Kelvin Gastelum being forced by the UFC to stay at 185. I'm curious about one aspect from your perspectives and what we've seen up to this point about Gastelum. How much of his overall potential as a fighter will be lost if he never fights at 170 again? Please discuss. Uh, so yeah, Ben, obviously Kelvin Gastelum goes out and gets uh, a victory over Nate Marquardt at UFC 188 in a middleweight fight uh, that was stopped in between the first and second round. Is second that right? And second and third round by uh, Nate Marquardt's corner. Uh, and, you know, a dominant performance by Kelvin Gastelum. He had come in, I believe, off the loss to Tyron Woodley in what uh, was supposed to be a welterweight fight, but he badly missed weight. They ended up having that at 180. 180 pounds. That's back at UFC 183. He lost a split decision to Tyron Woodley. Uh, before that, he'd been pretty good at welterweight, although he'd missed weight once before uh, for his his fight against Nico Misoki. There you go. Uh, and so uh, basically at this point, the UFC says he has to stay at 185, I guess, in, in, until he proves to them that he could make 170 in a 
in a reliable manner, or are we just saying no chance, well, no chance in hell? It sounded like Dana White was not quite saying no chance in hell ever, but saying no chance in hell right now and saying that he didn't think that Kelvin Gastelum really could make 170 and still be fit to fight, um, which – I don't know. You know, one of the things Danny and I were talking about in this thing is like we have all at various times in this sport kind of decried the dangerous and at times just like counterproductive practice of extreme weight cuts. Uh, so it seems like, OK, good. Like if we're going to use the heavy hand of the UFC to force people to do anything, it should be to force them to fight at a healthier weight class so they're not just destroying themselves to get down there and make weight. At the same time, it does seem like, hey. Again, these are independent contractors, promoter, and you're going to tell them what weight class they can and can't fight at. That seems like a little bit much. But I, I also feel like with a guy like Kelvin Gastelum, I don't know if he loses too much by fighting at 185. I mean, he's billed at what, like 5'9", five, 5'10". Five, I guess that puts him pretty at, at pretty much a, a average height for welterweight, maybe a little bit short for middleweight. But he doesn't seem – you see him in there against guys like Nate Marquardt or something, and he doesn't seem like he's suffering from a huge like size or strength advantage. I, I think maybe he he's better off at that weight class if it's going to make such a huge difference in, in how he looks when he shows up. Remember when he showed up against Tyrone Woodley? Jesus Christ, man. He looked like he wanted to be absolutely anywhere else uh, during that fight. So I, I don't – I think a lot of times people get in their heads that they are going to be better off in a lower weight class than they really are. He might be one of those guys. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to say. Like you said, if he is going to be better or worse at 185, or you know, better off at at 170. Clearly, he he tore through the tough uh, 17 tournament that which was at middleweight, right? And then he defeated Uriah Hall uh, to win that. You know, back in uh, uh, April of 2013, uh, and then immediately dropped to welterweight. Uh, I don't know if prior to that any of his fights had been at, at welterweight or or middleweight, but he was undefeated at that point. In fact, was undefeated before he lost to Tyron Woodley. He was ten to zero, and looked pretty good against Nate Marquardt. Frankly, at at middleweight, not that Marquardt is the most meaningful measuring stick at this point. Now that he's one and five, dating back to the start of of 2013, but. Uh, I guess the, the, it comes down to where the fighter wants to compete, right? That's the kind of the, the, um, the, the central question here. If but the guy wants to be at 170, if he proves that he can make it, then I would think that you're kind of, you kind of got to let him fight there. Like if he, if he just simply can't make the weight, then he, he would be forced, uh, you know, for the good of his own career to go to 185. Uh, but you're right that it is kind I mean, of isn't a, what's happened to him though. At this point, I guess it has, uh, it, and you know, it's kind of like you said, it's unclear as to what he would have to do to convince the UFC yeah. that he could go back to 170. I don't know if he would have to do like a practice weight cut, go over to Dana White's house with his <laughs> with his slicks on or right. whatever, and run around the house. We're just gonna he, pull the bathroom scale out here, Calvin. Give us a second here till he can make 170, or if he's just gonna have to be at 185 the rest of his career. Hold on, um, I'm gonna put the dogs outside, and I'll, I'll get the I'll get the scale out, brother. And I mean, maybe this turns into a cautionary tale where Kelvin Gasolum loses a bunch of fights at middleweight, and then we have to hang our head and wonder what might have been if he was able to consistently make 170. But we have no reason to think that yet, right? He's, he looked pretty good against Nate Marquardt. And, and maybe if we find, uh, maybe if we book him against someone a little bit more relevant, uh, we can, we can get a better idea of how he would do at 185 as, as compared to welterweight. Yeah. And I, I do think like that issue of like prove, how do you prove it to the UFC? Cause it's not just like making the weight, right? Like they're one of the issues that Dana White brought up was, 
making the weight and being able, being healthy enough to fight afterwards. So what would he have to do? Show up the next day at, at Lorenzo Fertitta's house and, and spar one of his teammates? You know Lorenzo Fertitta has one of those Aerodyne bikes okay. at his house. We're going to put him on We're there? We're going to put him on that and some, in a hoodie and some sweats. Just see what happens. See if we can get him down there. Then after we're done with that, we're going to go out in the driveway, play a little pickup basketball. And if you're dragging ass... That's right. Lorenzo's going to know. It's going to be middleweight forever. Can we talk a little bit briefly about Nate Marquardt before we move on? Since uh, this seemed to be the performance where Nate Marquardt really looked, uh, I guess the technical term is done like dinner. Um, he got kind <laughs> wow. of uh, uh, beat up by Kelvin Gastelum and then his longtime coach, Trevor Whitman, who I know you spent a lot of time around when you were doing your uh, The Hurt Business series that eventually was published on MMAfighting.com. Uh, he, he called it off between the second and third round. So Marquardt, who was once a top level guy and way back in the day, if you've been around a long time, you might remember that Nate Marquardt was one of those guys that people wrote about in sort of hushed tones on message boards back when he was king of pancrase right. about how good he was and how he was going to come over and dominate everyone. Uh, so it made me kind of sad to see him get run over by a 23 year old kid. And obviously he hasn't really been a relevant or, or, uh, elite fighter in the in the uh, welterweight or middleweight divisions for a while now um but this seemed like as good a place to stop as any if you're nate marquardt and uh then he went ahead and published a, a post on his facebook account i think today monday uh where i started reading it and i was like you know what no this is not the message that i think anyone is looking to get from nate marquardt at this point because his point was God has a plan for him. God has a plan for him, and he had a lot of stuff working against him on this night. Food poisoning, muscle cramps, elevation. Didn't sound like a dude who was like, you know what, I shouldn't be doing this anymore. Yeah, didn't sound like he had, was going to confront some hard truths about aging and life. Uh, yeah, and I mean, I don't know, maybe some of that is just like, I, how much do we really expect uh, right after the fight like that, you know, it is pretty close for him. I, you know, also he was talking about unsure about how the elevation, which I'm sure we'll talk about later would affect him and that he had done some research and it had been inconclusive as to what the effect would be coming from uh, Denver already pretty high altitude, uh, then going to Mexico city to fight. I, I don't know, man, you know, it did seem like one of those fights where it felt like everybody else wanted that to be it. And like, we were going to be sad enough as it was. And it doesn't seem like that's the message he's going to take away from it. And in other words, it can get a whole lot sadder. Uh, I don't know. You know, I, it's tough to know how to feel about that. I thought it was interesting to see him, you know, back there with Trevor Whitman uh, because, you know, they had, had kind of a falling out over some of the, the TRT stuff and everything. Um, but, you know, kudos to Whitman for, for doing the right thing there and, and stopping that fight. That was that was something that needed to be done there and something we don't see often enough. The next question this week, champion fights Jessica Penne on Fight Pass from Berlin or somewhere. Is our girl Champy going to plant her flag as the star the strawweight division can rally around? Or does this become yet another UFC belt that gets passed around like a joint at a Nick Diaz party? Champy? That's what we're doing I guess now. So, Champy, it's, that's what it says. I just read. I, you know, I just work here. I read the emails as written. It's not when I can that we're changing her name to Joanna Champion, kind of at her request. But now we're gonna abbreviate that too, Champy. Okay. I mean, that, that's the point where you start to sound like you're a lake monster or something. <laughs> Here's the thing about strawway Champion Joanna Yenjechik, Ben. Uh She's 9-0. She's undefeated. She just won the title from Carla Esparza at UFC 185 in March. 
Uh, she does not necessarily fit what you might call the Ronda Rousey mold. And, you know, the, the, the mold that the UFC has traditionally liked to uh, promote in its female fighters and champions. I guess it's one female champion that it has seen fit to promote in the past. Uh, but there is something there, right? There is something charismatic going on with champy Yolanda Yanjechik, the strawweight champion. As I saw written on, on Twitter earlier today, her shoe game is always tight. <laughs> and it seems like she has, she has something there aside from being undefeated and like having a fairly exciting striking style that, uh, that seems like it's, it's kind of tailor made to be someone that people want to watch fight. Like there's some charisma there. I feel like if she can get on a roll and win a few fights at strawweight, she might be come someone who at least could be a draw over in her own neck of the woods. Yeah. I think she has a lot of uh, charisma and you can tell that because it comes across, even though even like when she's speaking like broken English to people after she's winning the belt, like you can tell like that still she has a lot of personality that's managing to come through there. And uh, it's one of those things too, where like the same conversation we've had about like the flyweights before, where we will alternately complain about the UFC sticking them on main cards when people say they don't want to watch them, but then also, uh, sticking them on like fight pass events or prelims because, Hey, how the hell are the flyweights ever supposed to get over? Kind of feels like a similar thing with this, right? Like she's defending her title on fight pass, which the UFC is I've seen lately trying to promote as a feature and not a bug. Uh, but you're also like, okay, I, it's hard to imagine that you would be doing that. Like if, uh, Paige Van Zant, for instance, uh, became your, your champion at that weight class. I don't see you sticking that one on Fight Pass uh, and using it to, to main event the show out in Berlin there. So I don't know. Maybe they're hoping that she'll become a regional superpower in that sense. I, I feel like from what we've seen of her so far, I, I can't wait to see more. She seems like an exciting fighter. Uh, seems really likable. Uh, also, I was a little bit surprised. Have you looked at the betting odds for her fight against Jessica Penne? No. Just just take a wild guess. Is she an underdog? No, she is not. Oh, she's not. She's the favorite. Uh, f- f- two to one? Seven to one. What? Get out of town. That's what I'm looking at right now. Well, that is a segue to the thing that I was going to bring up next, so that I think it'll be interesting to see her fight Jessica Penne, uh, or as Joe Rogan would say, Jessica Penne, as he said during all of the pre-fight hype footage, which made me swear under my breath and be like, don't do this. Don't do this to me, Joe Rogan. Don't give me yet another fighter where there are multiple pronunciations. I can barely handle handle one. I'm going to go ahead with penne, like the pasta, because that's what I'm familiar with. Okay. Uh, Jessica Penne, she's not really, she ain't no joke, right? She's a former Invicta Adam weight champion. So from a a smaller weight class who, who came up and participated in the ultimate fighter and, and uh, I believe won a fight or two in that tournament. Yep. She won two fights before she ended up losing to Carla Esparza, uh, but came back and beat random Marcos in her UFC debut in, in December. And maybe, maybe Ben, it's the fact that she lost to Esparza in that tournament, uh, would account for the fact that she's such a, a huge underdog since, you know, Yen Jacek kind of did the damn thing against Esparza, uh, and frankly, we'll be seeing those highlights for the rest of her career. Uh, but I would say Jessica Penne is not to be overlooked. I think, I feel like she's got skills. She could, she could get some stuff done here. She could, but I think style wise, it's a bad matchup for her. I think that she would be better off if she could get into a ground battle there and, and use some jujitsu against, uh, Champy, Joanna Champion, but I don't see her doing that. I don't know how you, she really gets, uh, 
Jin Jacek to the ground. I mean, Carlos Esparza seemed to have kind of a bad game plan as far as that just diving in for one takedown after another without really setting it up. But I still think that uh, Jin Jacek showed us some pretty good takedown defense. And if you have to stand there and, and trade with her, she's got some crisp striking, man. There's some stinging shots that she hit Carlos Esparza with. And I think if she starts putting those on uh, Jessica uh, Panay, then uh, that's going to be trouble. Don't do that. You just said Penne. I know. I was waiting for I don't want you to do that. We're saying Penne. That's the official pronunciation of the co-main event podcast. Penne? Of Jessica Penne's name. Penne. It's like the pasta. Penne. You're confused now. You don't even know which Wonderful. one it is. Wonderful. Great pasta. The next question this week comes to us from uh, Daniel Yoon. He writes, Yair the Yak Rodriguez deserves breakout fighter of the year. His creative technique is beautiful. His ground defense was pure brilliance. The man gave everything in those three rounds, or so we thought. To top it off, uh, gave the rest of what he had for lunch right next to the astounded Joe Rogan. And as icing on the cake, he gave the most mild-mannered, soft-spoken apology I've ever heard. All this after beating the crap out of a grown man for three epic rounds. Need I say more? Discuss ad nauseum. Ben, oh, ad nauseum, I get it. I think there's a double meaning there. I, I don't know what you mean. Just a, just a double meaning? Like we're going to talk about it a lot, but also... Rodriguez threw up during his, his post-fight. See what he did there? What are we, where are we getting uh, the, the yak? Is that a real nickname for this dude? No, I assume that was another joke about him throwing up. Oh, okay. To yak is to throw up. But it was spelled as yak the animal. Uh, I always thought that... Yeah, it is. I don't know. I don't, I don't have a correct, correct pronunciation on yak to throw up okay. in front of me. I didn't know this. We were going to talk about that, so I didn't do any research. Call, maybe we can get Nate, Nate Marquardt on the horn. Yeah. Can figure that out for us. The research was Ben, I had kind of a sinking feeling in my stomach to continue the, uh, the double meanings here when I saw that we were going to roll out the pay-per-view main, uh, main card with, uh, Angela Hill in her third professional mixed martial arts fight and then follow that up with Rodriguez in his, uh, what is it? Sixth professional mixed martial arts fight i thought to myself boy this could this could get rough especially in mexico city with the altitude and whatnot uh but the greg jackson product rodriguez um he did not look bad at all in fact i would say he looked uh every bit worthy of the praise he's been getting i don't think it's overstating the case to say that he seems like uh one of the more exciting prospects that we've seen in a long time. And Charles Rosa is no joke. Charles Rosa is a tough fighter uh, out of ATT there. And he, I think one of the really impressive things was the way Rodriguez, despite, you know, relative inexperience, went out there and just threw absolutely everything at him. You know, wasn't holding back anything at all. Uh, if he is tired and has to throw up on himself after something like that, you can understand why with you, you know, you're leaping all over the place, throwing all kinds of crazy kicks at the guy, trying all kinds of submission attempts. Uh, you know, that's, I think one of the most, uh, promising things about him is just that, that going for it type, uh, approach that you don't always see from people at that level of experience. And so, yeah, it is a, a really exciting possibility to, to think about where he could go after something like that. It also, I loved the line from Joe Rogan when the dude offered his incredibly mild-mannered apology for throwing up, where Joe Rogan told him that basically after that performance, he deserves to be able to throw up wherever he wants to, which I didn't know was a right you could earn. And yeah. I'm I'm really excited about that now that I know that. I waited most of my young adult life for someone to tell me I could throw up wherever I wanted. Mostly, yeah. it, mostly it was a problem. I got to be honest with you. No, not many people took that that attitude, which I feel is refreshing from Joe Rogan. And frankly, Ben, you know you had a good night 
when you end it by throwing up during your post-fight interview and all of the reaction is positive. Like there's almost no <laughs> negative reaction online to this guy uh, throwing up during his post-fight interview. And maybe that's because uh, he looked like a featherweight who brings sort of a John Jones-style stand-up to the fore uh, and also some ground skills. Yeah. So he's a guy to watch for. Did you see John Morgan uh, posted a picture on uh, Twitter of the UFC event staff having to get in there and clean up the vomit, uh, in between fights, man, can you imagine like if you're, you know, you work in the UFC event there, you think maybe you'll have to go out there and spray some stuff on some blood or whatever. And then they tell you like, Hey, clean up on aisle three over here. Uh, the yak just vomited on himself and you're like, God damn it. Maybe they still had that purple bucket that Ryan Jimmo availed himself of <laughs> he could just you could put a piece of athletic tape on there right puke on there that'll be the puke bucket yeah. we'll just have that <laughs> we'll have that moving forward as just in case we need it last question this week comes to us from suzanne davis she writes did you guys know that the fights in mexico city this past saturday were at high altitude discuss um i believe it was mentioned i believe it got a mention on the yeah, broadcast yeah that didn't escape my focus. I don't know about you. I assume we will talk more about this a little bit in the Cain Velasquez Fabricio Verdum round coming up. But, uh, and clearly doing this event in Mexico City almost as a showcase for Velasquez was something that the UFC wanted to do. Uh, it was the same arena where Verdum had beat Mark Hunt a few months before to win the interim UFC heavyweight title. Uh, so doing an event in Mexico and particularly, I think, at this arena in Mexico City was was uh, a goal for the UFC, something that they wanted to pull off. But it does like, man, I do kind of at times have to question the utility of of doing an event like this uh, at any comparable altitude like this, whether that be Denver. We've seen some bad performances in places like Denver or Mexico City, or if they came here and tried to do a show in Butte, Montana. Uh, it just seems like it may, it gives in a sport that is already so demanding and g- seems to give back so little, like it gives the athletes one more enormous hurdle to try to overcome, especially when you damn well know that the UFC has a vested interest in putting on entertaining fights. And if you come out and give a bad performance, not only is the UFC going to be upset with you, but like the fans are going to be upset with you too. So it just seems like raising the level of difficulty to a degree that seems, I'm not going to say unfair, but like unnecessary almost. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, it seems like the UFC decides it wants to go there basically for business reasons, right? You know, and it's not paying attention to the altitude or what that the environmental effects on the fighters might be. And it's one thing where it's like, you know, if you're playing a professional football game in Denver and it's, you know, you you got oxygen tanks on the sidelines and chances to, to have a break and recover and fighting's just not really like that. And especially with a sport where, the UFC operates according to that same like fight week schedule where it's going to fly these guys in, you know, five days before the fight or whatever. And it's up to them if they want to do something else to try to prepare themselves for that altitude. You know, we heard about Johnny Case uh, sleeping in a, in, in a special tent to try to get ready for it. Fabricio Verdum, as I'm sure, you know, as you said, well, I'm sure we'll talk about in that round was there for over a month beforehand, but it's like, that's a luxury for a lot of the fighters, right. especially yeah. the guys who are talking about how they don't have any damn money and they have to get up there on the, the mic and bed for, as you said, pocket change from uh, the billionaire owners after the fight, they don't have the ability to do some of those things that might get them ready for it. So it's like when you're, when you take your product there to like nearly 8,000 feet elevation 
and you're telling the fighters like, all right, we'll fly in Tuesday and uh, best of luck. Like you are, you're, you're putting those guys in a tough spot and you're not necessarily going to get some of the best performances out of it. Uh, and like Dana White was saying afterwards that like six people were, were vomiting uh, after their fights, which that should probably tell you something there. Maybe it's not, not the best place for you to be holding fights or maybe you need to make it possible for everybody to have a little bit more equal footing and getting ready for, for something like that. Yeah, and not that all roads in the sport need to lead back to fighter pay, but all roads in the sport kind of lead back to fighter pay over and over again. And the people that I feel worst for are people like Tisha Torres and Angela Hill, who, you know, didn't have the greatest fight and caught a little bit of flack on, on social medias for not being acclimated properly to the altitude or whatever. And it's like, man, those people are lucky to be making 15 and 15 on their tough contracts you know what i mean like how is someone like angela hill gonna afford to move her entire training camp to mexico to acclimate to the altitude when you know we found out after the heavyweight main event that kane velasquez said maybe two weeks wasn't long enough for him to be there like how long would you have to move your training camp for which i am sure is an enormous logistical nightmare and a huge financial uh you know obligation to have to bring everyone down there to train. So it just seems like an impossible position for a lot of people on the roster. And I think, you know, not that the UFC needs to, uh, be feel responsible for every single aspect of this sport, but like, if you're going to do an event at a place like that and you are already making plans to, uh, provide training outlets and training tips and nutrition and stuff like that for your fighters at this quote unquote UFC lab and some of the new partnerships that you just announced at the press conference uh, a week or two ago. Maybe you also have an obligation to like make sure that everyone can get down to Mexico city and acclimate to the climate if they want to. Uh, and not that I think that that's a necessity, but I think like it's something that you should definitely think about if you are committed to doing events in places that are up there way at high altitude uh anyway that is going to do it for listener mail this week if you have a question a comment or a concern to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks you know how to get a hold of us just go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast while you're there you can sign up for the breakfast of champions newsletter that comes out every friday morning and catches you up on all the news and notes that we miss from monday to through friday when we're not recording the podcast as for right now though we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Round one of the co-main event podcast is presented by the National Academy of Sports Medicine. The National Academy of Sports Medicine is looking for people who want an exciting career in the fitness industry where you wake up every day doing something that you love. NASM trainers improve people's lives by helping them reach their health and fitness goals. Don't miss this opportunity to start a career where you get to stay active and change people's lives. It doesn't get any better. The NASM guarantees that you'll land a job within six 
60 days of your CPT certification or your money back. Ben, tell them what they get if they go online and check out the website. Well, Chad, you can get a 14-day free trial of fun online programs at MyUSATrainer.com. It's MyUSATrainer.com. Restrictions apply. See MyUSATrainer.com for details. Well, Ben, I feel kind of bad for Fabricio Verdum this week. He, he seems like a super nice guy and a good fighter. He's run his uh, win streak in the heavyweight division out to six fights, and it is going to be a bummer to see what terrible catastrophe befalls his career now that he is the UFC heavyweight champion, whether that be motorcycle accident or diverticulitis or, you know, just being made of peanut brittle and chewing gum like the recently deposed Cain Velasquez. Uh, history tells us being UFC heavyweight champ does not lead you anywhere good. You know, that's that's all been done, though. The diver this, well, he's going to have to do something new? Oh, yeah. Like lost in a submarine accident or he, something like that? He's a little bit of a trendsetter, I think, and a, a, a creative sort of guy. I, I say... Leg caught in bear trap. Okay. Fabrizio Verdum announces plans to hike Everest and then just disappears. Never seen or heard from again. Yeah. Something like that. Fabrizio Verdum goes in search of lost city made of gold. Uh, and you can kind of fill in the blanks from there. Well, last week, Ben, we kicked off the round about Cain Velasquez versus Fabrizio Verdum by playing, of course, of course, but maybe the Louis C.K. comedy routine. Uh, and in retrospect, the of course seems somewhat different than we expected it to be. Uh, Velasquez came in as, as like a five to one favorite, right? And, and was everyone's pick to, uh, go on to fame and glory as, as potentially the greatest MMA heavyweight of all time. Um, I don't know if that's lost forever, but it's certainly lost for the moment as, uh, Fabricio Verdum defeats him in the third round with a guillotine choke. Uh, and really a performance where Velasquez started strong and then faded strong and eventually succumbed to, uh, I would describe a fatigue mistake, maybe also of, of a getting beat up mistake where he left his head hanging out to one side on a takedown, uh, against a guy like Verdum. And I'm sure that there are hundreds and hundreds of people that can attest that being stuck in a guillotine choke by Fabricio Verdum is probably no fun at all. But by the time Velasquez got caught in his, uh, he did that. I'm really tired and I'm ready to tap tap that we have seen before. Yeah, I think this is going to be one of those where it's probably difficult for us to say for sure. Uh, how much of this was Fabricio Verdum just beating Cain Velasquez on skill and how much of it was Cain Velasquez getting tired. Cause you're right that it did seem like Velasquez lost a lot of steam very noticeably there, but it also seemed like, uh, like I, I wrote about it in my column afterwards, like Verdum had a really good sense of how this was going to go. That, that, uh, his breakdown of all the, relevant variables in this on the UFC's embedded video was totally spot on. He's like, Cain Velasquez is going to come out hard and try to knock me out early. Um, but he's been on for two years, which is a long time. And I don't think he's accustomed to this altitude yet. I don't think his body is ready for it. So he's going to come out hard and then it's going to be my turn. So you see Cain Velasquez there on the first two or three minutes, uh, taking it to Fabricio Verdum. And it's easy to say to yourself, well, if he didn't get tired, he would have just kept doing that. But it's also, you can flip it around and say, Verdum knew to expect that, kind of hung out there, weathered the storm a little bit, and then poured it on him. Like I think you got to give Fabricio Verdum a lot of credit there for just being able to to see and accurately predict how all the different moving parts in this thing were going to go. Uh, and when he had Vlasquez in trouble, didn't freak out, didn't 
didn't get overexcited trying to finish it, kind of let the finish come to him. Uh, it seemed just like a great mix of technical skill on Fabrizio Verdum's part and just like, I'm going to say savvy veteranness. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I don't like in mixed martial arts that, that if we try to talk about multiple factors existing in a fight that people are going to act like you're trying to take something away from the guy who won. Uh, nobody's trying to take anything away from Fabricio Verdum. Clearly he put on an amazing performance against Cain Velasquez. He, he was overlooked and underestimated by a lot of people, uh, probably including the guys on this podcast, given how we talked about the fight last week. Uh, and then came out and, and really kind of put on a clinic. And I think you have to respect the evolution that he has gone through in the sport since, since he opted to be cut after getting beat by Junior Dos Santos all those years ago. And I would say maybe a guy who has uh, improved and rounded out his skill set more than anyone we've ever seen at heavyweight. It's hard to think of someone else who came in as a master of one thing and became as adept at the other aspect of the game as Fabricio Verdum is now. I can't think of anybody. Yeah. Well, it, it does seem too, especially that he, he has like that. We've all, remember we used to talk about how with basically three, uh, elements of, uh, fighting, right? Like where people would say, you got to kind of pick two, right? You can be like a, a wrestler who can take people down. And if you're, if you have good boxing or good kickboxing or something, and you don't have to be that great at jujitsu as long as you can avoid getting subbed, or you can be a kickboxer with really good, uh, bottom game jujitsu, or you can be a good stand up fighter with good, like anti wrestling or just like takedown defense, that kind of stuff. And you see him now, and it seems like he's found a great, uh, like complementary skill sets there where he, his stand up is good enough that he can force a guy like Kane Velasquez to be like, like, okay, I got to get this dude down. And then he, when he forces them into that kind of desperation shot, he has the exact right skill set for making you pay from there. I mean, especially for like heavyweights, uh, and bottom game jujitsu, you don't see a whole lot of guys, uh, in MMA who are better than Fabricio Verdum. And it's like, he has that perfect mix of skills where like, all right, you want to stand there and kickbox with him. That's not going to be so great. And there's going to be plenty of opportunities there for him to, to get something on you, even if you're somebody like Mark Hunt. Um, and then if you do figure like, well, I just want to, I want to get, I want to opt out of that altogether, get him down to the mat, put him on his back. That's just way more dangerous in a way. Like it does seem like he, he's found a great, uh, mix of, of all that stuff for, for his particular game. And it opens up a lot of kind of interesting potential matchups in the heavyweight division. Obviously, you could have a rematch with Andre Arlovsky knocking on the door. Junior Dos Santos is still officially uh, your number one or number two ranked contender. And, of course, Stipe Miocic uh, knocking on the door as well. Travis Brown maybe, uh, you know, a, a step behind or right there with those guys. So a lot of interesting things to happen, I think, with Fabricio Verdum. They haven't really announced what they're going to do next. I think uh, a rematch is probably on the table. Although this is one of those instances instances where you would have to wonder uh, if you just automatically get a rematch if you're a dominant UFC champion and someone beats you because this one went down about as emphatically and decisively as you could have. Uh, my thing is, man, I would want to be the third guy in line. I'd want to be Travis Brown right now because okay. after Cain Velasquez's loss, I believe, I believe, might have to get Nate Marquardt to do some research on this, but that the record for consecutive UFC heavyweight title defenses is still two. I'm not yeah. sure that anyone has defended it more than that, uh, which speaks to uh, the chaos-riddled 
almost borderline nihilistic atmosphere in the heavyweight division. Uh, and could, we could bring up a lot of, uh, philosophical questions about what it even means to be the UFC heavyweight champion. That's probably a, a discussion for another day, but like, I want to be the third guy in line because that's when Verdum loses the title. So I would like to be Travis Brown at this point. Okay. Maybe Arlovsky. So that when Fabricio Verdum is briefly knocked out of action because a piece of a satellite fell and hit him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he has to make his comeback fight, uh, presumably in like Death Valley or something, uh, and under less than ideal conditions, then you can, you can capitalize. That's right. And you'd have to get that cleared by the state athletic commission, of course, cause he's going to be competing with that golden hand after his right hand is, is bitten off by an alligator. Right. Uh, during a visit to a children's hospital in the Florida Keys. Right. And I assume that, uh, his, his custom made eye patch, uh, after he loses an eye due to a, a chemical explosion, uh, while he is uh, searching for a, a youth tonic. Uh, I, I don't think that that's going to help him in that fight. No. So maybe I guess if you're Fabricio Verdum, try to stay in the house as much as you can till, <laughs> till you, you get through that third UFC heavyweight title defense. Um, I would not want to be the next dude to fight Cain Velasquez because, uh, I imagine he's going to show up somewhere at sea level, maybe the Las Vegas, uh, and probably whip somebody's ass. That seems like something, unless, I guess as a caveat, you have to say, unless the injuries and the kind of mounting age, I think he's only 32, but still, uh, unless the injuries have kind of done him in, but that didn't, it didn't seem like that kind of performance to me. He looked no. like you get him someplace where he is at his, his strength and he's going to be the Cain Velasquez we expected to show up for this one. Yeah. I, I, that was one thing I wanted to bring up before we moved on from this round, like, in retrospect, you know, he was saying the thing about how, hey, maybe two weeks was not enough, um, which seems like I feel like I could have told you that beforehand. And also uh, on the embedded, Javier Mendez said that he didn't even want to be there for two weeks, that he thought like, hey, we'll just get there the week of and it'll be fine. And that he had to kind of talk him into like, no, we want to spend a little more time there than that. Uh, I wonder, too, like if this will make other people think twice because in retrospect, when you think about it, okay, you're off almost two years with injuries. You're coming back. It's already going to be a tough enough uh, fight because of the the ring rust aspect of it. And then they want you to do it at nearly 8,000 feet elevation when you train more or less at sea level. Like it just seems like one too many things against you. And there's a lot of hurdles. You can imagine how Cain Velasquez probably felt like because of the injuries and everything and, and having to, to pull out and, and the UFC creating that interim title already that maybe he felt like he was not in a position to be able to say, you know what? I don't want to do that fight there. I don't want to do it in Mexico City. Let's do it in Las Vegas. I know. It kind of seems like they bent over backwards to get this spot for him. And and like in retrospect, it just seems like a terrible spot for him. Yeah. Uh, And also like – I don't want to rag on Cain Velasquez, but like kind of a, a sad commentary on a guy who's supposed to be the heavyweight champion that he didn't acclimate, acclimate himself properly to the, to the elevation like that. You know, maybe there's something to these new partnerships with the UFC is trying to do with all these sports medicine experts to try to figure out different ways for people to train. But we'll have to talk about that at a later date. Ben, let's do, are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll move on to round two. Uh, this week, Ben, I, like I've said at the top of the round, I'm happy for Fabricio Verdum for winning the UFC heavyweight title. I respect his evolution as a fighter. He seems like a nice guy. I recognize that he's perhaps made the biggest transformation of anyone that we've seen, but man, he's got to stop making that face. Are you fucking kidding me? At some point, probably I assume in grade school, 
Verdum realized that he could make that face and people would laugh. And sometime immediately after that, he clearly decided that making that face was going to be his thing. At this point, though, I feel like the face is kind of become the, uh, the fist pose. They're like putting your fist up in photos of, of the MMA faces. It's the, it's, it's Dana White saying business as usual. You know, it's on all the websites. It's in every highlight video. Uh, I think we're at, we're at face overkill at this point. I could so, not disagree with you more. Are you fucking kidding me? Enough with the face. Don't listen to this man, Fabrizio. Don't listen to him. If you could make that face, Chad, you would never stop making that face. I think you're jealous. That's what I, I would think. hope. I had a good friend. Perhaps who hosted a mixed martial arts podcast who would come along at some point and say, Chad, maybe, maybe make the face one out of every three times that you want to make the face. <laughs> maybe that's what he's doing right now. Oh man, that's, I mean, that could be, that's a, that's a sobering thought. Chad, this week, my, are you fucking kidding me? We talked earlier about Yair the Yak Rodriguez's, uh, performance and his, 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 vomiting afterwards which apparently he had earned the right to do anywhere he pleases now uh which is really going to surprise the people at airport security i feel but he said afterwards in a post-fight interview i believe with ariel helwani that he was basically dead broke heading into this fight had less than four hundred dollars according to him been there well, Chad, when you were there, tell me, was it your second fight in the UFC? Were you fighting on a UFC main card of a pay-per-view? Were you the winner of the Ultimate Fighter Latin America? Remember when the Ultimate Fighter first debuted and it, the whole thing was how they, they were fighting for a six-figure contract? Remember that whole yes. thing? How yes, it was I remember it well. Life? Instead, now we have the guy who wins the tough Latin America fighting on the main card being awesome and still going into the fight, he has less than $400. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Give these poor fighters some damn money. Give them some money. Well, that's going to do it for round number one. I actually don't remember if I've won a season of Tough Latin America. You probably I'm, have. I might have. I probably have. You are at least a finalist. Yeah. Uh, we're going to go ahead and move on to round number two. That starts right now. Chad, in the co-main event at UFC 188, Eddie Alvarez got his shit broke. His whole shit. His whole shit broke. Just the whole damn thing. And still found a way to win the fight. Now, let's talk first about the, the, the thing that happens in round one, right? Where it's basically one of those rounds where there's a lot of almost action. A lot mm -hmm. of fainting, fainting, fainting. And then, bam. You know, a couple brief spasms of violence there that do not favor Eddie Alvarez. Uh, gets his nose smashed by an elbow, takes a couple of hard right hands from Gilbert Melendez. And as he's walking to his corner at the end of the round, does the little thing where you want to blow the, the blood out of your badly broken nose. And his eye just balloons up. Like you can see the shock in his face where he's like, hold on, 
where did the vision in my left eye just go? What's right. happening? And at that point, especially, and you look at him coming out after, for the second round after that, and you think, Eddie Alvarez is fucked. Yes. Yeah. And it looked like a thing where you thought that the doctor might stop the fight because his eye was so swollen. And frankly, seeing that slow motion replay of, of the incident that you talked about, uh, man, both fascinating and disgusting to yeah. watch his eye swell up like that. And like also there's, you know, if you've been watching the UFC a long time, I'm certain that you've heard Joe Rogan talk yes. about how this is a thing that you're not supposed to do. And perhaps, I don't know if this was one of those things, but I feel like a lot of the things that, that are either Mike Goldberg's or Joe Rogan's kind of pet topics that they mention all the time, we have a tendency to be like, eh, you know, whatever. This is one of those things this guy always Tie talks cups. about. All right, yeah. yeah, we got it. And then so to see Eddie Alvarez Cheap. do that and to see his eye just go and close, it was like, it was vindication, right, yeah. for Joe Rogan. Did it make you feel like, Okay, here's where we're seeing Eddie Alvarez's lack of UFC experience. He clearly hasn't watched enough UFC events because anyone <laughs> yeah, who no, had I seen as many as five UFC events on TV would would have this ingrained in their brain by now. It had to be something because they even talked about in the broadcast that a guy with as many fights and as seemingly as much like boxing experience and as much of a boxing background as Eddie Alvarez would know better. It just seemed like maybe uh instinct or like yeah, something he it, didn't think about and it didn't even look like he really blew his nose that hard no. just like he was sort of trying to clear his airway and then suddenly his eye like it looked like someone had taped a peach to the outside of his face <laughs> well i don't know if you've ever had your nose broken but i have, I have. yeah I have. and it is like when you're when you get that that feeling and like your your nose is just filled with blood like that i can see how even an experienced fighter like in you know where where you do something and immediately, like even as you're doing it, you're thinking to yourself, oh, no, oh, no, this is the exact wrong thing. I should not do this. And that's one of those things where you can see how the the impulse to do that is so strong that you might not even think about it until it's too late. And then, crap, you can't see out of your eye. But then that's the thing is you got to give credit to Eddie Alvarez. Like I see, you know, I love it when a, a Diaz brother is going to get on here and talk about how you got your whole shit broke and you didn't win that fight at all. And – if I were Gilbert Melendez, I would be mad about that decision. I might also blame myself a little bit for maybe not doing enough down the stretch, just not enough output. Um, cause it felt like he could have poured it on there a little more. I mean, hey, maybe he had to deal with the altitude too. So it's easy for us to, to sit here at comfy 3000 feet or wherever we're at and say that, uh, he should have just pressed the, the pace a little bit more, but you got to give Eddie Alvarez credit for feeling like going out there, losing the first round, going out to start the second round, severely diminished. And making it into the basically at that point the only kind of fight he could win uh, at, with one eye and uh, already having his whole shit broke at that point. And he like by that point, you know, he said afterwards he had a broken orbital too. Like he's just all messed up. And to go out there and to to kind of change the the nature of the fight and to grit this one out. I mean, it's not a, it's not going to be like on the Eddie Alvarez highlight reel necessarily, but it does give you the kind of sense like okay. Eddie Alvarez is, is probably going to be here for a little while in the UFC lightweight division. Yeah. I mean, you want to talk about grit and veteran savvy. Give it up to Eddie Alvarez for this performance. Uh, like you said at the beginning, that the kind of a tepid first round that Gilbert Melendez uh, obviously won. 
and another situation where it seemed like these guys came out and were fighting a lot of battles in there. Like they had the weight of this, uh, what we were led to believe was a years long beef between the two of them that I don't know if anyone had ever even heard about that before this fight was booked. Uh, but it, it had turned into a sort of like a high profile grudge match. And so they had that and they had the altitude. They, they were two guys who both really desperately needed a win. And in that first round, it looked like that was kind of weighing heavily on their minds. All of those things you could say, cause it was a tentative feeling out process. It seemed like neither of them really wanted to commit. And then for Eddie Alvarez to, to, uh, suffer the injury, get his whole shit broke to the extent that it was, uh, and then come back and make that tactical stylistic change headed into the second and third round. And as I said at the beginning, turn it into a, a silly ass, undependable ass fight that could have gone either way. Uh, man, I feel like you got to give him, give him a ton of credit and also a nod to what's great about mixed martial arts in that this is a sport where that can happen because it's so diverse and there's so many options that like maybe you get that from a different combat sport, but I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if you get a situation where Eddie Alvarez has to change his entire focus to grappling and kind of win this fight through pressure against the cage and, and, you know, one or two timely takedowns. I feel like it was a complete mixed martial arts performance and a really, uh, high level, respectable, great performance from Eddie Alvarez, even though as the fight ended, I thought Gilbert Melendez was going to win the decision. Me too. But you know, it's another fight that's so close that you can't really have a controversial decision in it. Like it, it could have gone either way and yeah. it did. Yeah. And it is a split decision. Why do I feel like that Nate Diaz has totally, uh, referred to like, an old Honda Accord or something as an undependable ass car. <laughs> you know what those guys are? I've decided Nick and Nate Diaz, like we started this show talking about professional wrestling. Those guys are territorial professional wrestling characters. It's like you, it's a little bit like what you were saying about Kimbo slice last week. It's like, you don't want to hear from Nick and Nate Diaz all the time, but like <laughs> they can come into your town, be there for a few weeks. You can love the crap out of them and thrill to their idiosyncrasies and quirks and then they go away for a few months and you forget about them and as soon as they come back you're like oh yeah yeah i've, I've missed guys. you nate diaz i yeah. like what you do I, i'm picking up what you are putting down didn't even realize all how these much guys in the back acting like they want it and then walking around with their heads down come on <laughs> <laughs> that is just a hell of a lot of fun you know but what do you what do you do now if you're gilbert melendez right because like I said, I could see how he would be upset about that decision. I would be pissed off about it. But then also, like, his, his post-fight quote seemed to indicate that he realized a little bit, like, you know, maybe he didn't do quite enough or as much as he could have there down the stretch. Um, but now, on paper, you look at it, and he has lost three of his four uh, since coming over to the UFC. You know, that doesn't look good, and yet... You look at who he's lost to and kind of the methods of victory. I mean, both the Benson Henderson and Eddie Alvarez fights could have easily gone his way. The other one was uh, the, the loss to Anthony Pettis, which he was doing well in, and then got clipped and got choked. It's like it's hard for me to remember a dude who was uh, one in three in four fights in the UFC but was as good as Gilbert Melendez clearly is. Yeah, it's a tough spot for him. Uh and, you know, for, if we're all going to sit around and wait for Donald Cerrone to fight Rafael Dos Anjos, uh, for the title sometime later this year, then there's going to have to be a lot of jockeying for position behind that fight. Um, if, if you think that maybe Eddie Alvarez just inherited a fight with Habib Nurmagomedov, then, 
uh, to the Victor go the spoils, I guess. Uh, but you know, Gilbert Melendez is certainly still, uh, a marketable fighter. And luckily for him, you can't really throw a rock in this division without hitting a bunch of dudes who would be awesome, entertaining fights for Gilbert Melendez. You got Michael Johnson, Edson Barbosa, Miles Jury. You could do Josh Thompson for the sixth or seventh time. Uh, you know, reignite their strike force feud. Bobby Green, Tony Ferguson, Ally Aquinta, uh, they're, uh, Jorge Masvidal, frankly, I don't know if they've fought. I don't have Gilbert Melendez's, uh, record in front of me. They, oh yeah, they have fought in strike force. Uh, yeah, they ended up in strike force in the same division. They had to fight at least three or four times. Yeah. Right? So like, you know, all is not lost here for Gilbert Melendez, man. Like any of those fights, hashtag would watch like Gilbert Melendez against raging Ally Aquinta. Come on. Yeah. That would be fun as hell. Yeah, man. Oh, you imagine the drink specials down there at uh, the Cubby Sampson's for that fight? You might want to just steer clear of that place, man. Be a line out the door. Just stay home. It's going to be a shame when uh, one of those Raging Al cocktails gets dropped uh, while it's still on fire and, and burns down the place. Uh, anything else you wanted to add about either Gilbert Melendez or Eddie Alvarez here? I guess for me it was a little bit... Uh, a little bit strange to see Gilbert Melendez get stifled as much as he did. You know, he's such a uh, well-respected professional uh, and clearly such a capable guy that to see uh, him have as many problems as he did with the pressure and the takedowns, um, especially since that was kind of the, the strategy he opted for against Anthony Pettis in his last fight. Uh, just a little bit of a strange performance. And maybe it was the altitude. I don't know. As Nate Diaz said, I don't think it helped at all. So, uh, undependable ass altitude. Actually, the altitude's pretty dependable. Yeah, it's very dependable. And as long as you do the proper research. Um, anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We're going to get started with round number three. That starts right now. Ben, for the first time since 2010, we are going to see both Ken Wayne Shamrock and Kevin Kimbo Slice Ferguson in an MMA cage. And if all things go well, as of this recording, we think we're going to see them in the same cage together, which will be a first That's for these guys. If uh, we follow Kimbo's advice to keep Ken Shamrock away from any sharp objects because who cuts themselves? That's about as close as you can get to committing suicide, as Kimbo said. Uh, follow-up question, who doesn't follow Kimbo Slice's advice? Everyone follows it. Uh, <laughs> ben, I know we don't do fight picks on this show. It's one of the uh, solemn vows, but I'm going to violate it, man. Who you got? You know... I feel like I have to say Kimbo based on not being super fucking old. Um, but at the same time, you look at pictures of Kenneth Wayne Shamrock and you feel like he may have found some sort of fountain of youth, if you know what I mean. Do you know what I mean? I, I hear you, brother. Uh, and by you're going with Kimbo because he's not super old, you mean he's 41, <laughs> whereas Ken Shamrock is 51. Uh, but through the, through the good grace of, of good genetics and hard work in the gym, 
Uh, I would trade bodies with the man in a heartbeat, at least physical resemblance wise. Yeah. Not sure. <laughs> you don't know what's going on. I don't on the know inside what's going there. on on the inside. Uh, but I feel like this is a fight. It's impossible to say what's going to happen if Ken Shamrock comes in with any kind of takedown ability and and the the ground attack, the submissions. Uh, that we knew from him when he was the head of the lion's den, then it seems like it would be his fight to lose. Uh, if he can't do that, then he's probably going to get knocked out, I would think, because uh, we would at least have to assume that at 41 years old, uh, Kimbo Slice can still knock a fool out on the feet. Especially, I mean, as we started to see with Ken Shamrock there later in his career, uh, his chin wasn't holding up super well to the punishment anymore. And that's the thing where you can... You know, get your hard work in the gym and uh, take advantage of your genetics and so forth. But it's really hard to do something about that. It's really hard to make it so that you can just take a punch better. Uh, that doesn't often come back for a whole lot of guys. So that's the part that would worry me for Ken Shamrock. Uh, also, though, I mean, I feel like like we're talking about this fight and it feels like it was ridiculous in a way the first time it was booked. And now it's so much more ridiculous but I can't tell if it's that our attitude toward these kind of fights is different, that the climate of MMA is different. But the fact that it seems even more ridiculous, it's like one of those Saturday Night Live skits where it's gone on for so long that it's funny again. Like it feels like this one has gone past the point of being r- ridiculous in like a kind of like shake your head at it way to like ridiculous in a hell yeah, let's do this kind of way. <laughs> no, exactly. I think that uh, the cat is out of the bag far out of the bag with what Bellator is aiming to do with a lot of these old veterans that it is bringing into the fold. Uh, as we said, I think when the ratings came out for Tito Ortiz, Stefan Bonner, crazy like a fox, because um, there's all these personalities out there in mixed martial arts that the the world's largest MMA promoter has sort of turned its nose up at, doesn't really have any create creative, has nothing for them. I think they would say in the professional wrestling industry, and with good reason, frankly, that these guys aren't still duffing around the uh, the UFC ranks, but they're still marketable. People still want to watch them and. And you put a bunch of these guys in a in a fishbowl and then dump them out. You're going to come out with a bunch of really fun matchups. And that's kind of what we have here in Ken Shamrock versus Kimbo Slice with the added intrigue that they were supposed to fight back in the day. And Ken Shamrock had to drop out at the last minute. And Kimbo Slice ended up getting beat that night by Seth Petrozelli. So just a lot of stuff going on, uh, you know, completely aside from and irrespective of the fact that, you know, that Kimbo talks a good game and will make this seem interesting during the lead up. And then you got Ken Shamrock with a 21 year old's body and some sideburns that he stole from 1996, uh, going down to his chin, dyed jet black, black as midnight on a moonless night. <laughs> You're uh, really affected by the dyed sideburns. This, you've the, mentioned this to me several times. I just in think the last it's funny days. that he's dying his sideburns jet black. I will, and also that he has sideburns that go down to just the point of his chin and he's just shaving the middle part. Uh, but I mean, we're all excited, frankly. And, and, uh, I think that that only underscores the genius of Bellator, especially when you look at the rest of this Bellator 138 card, where you're going to get Bobby Lashley, you're going to get Michael Chandler, you're going to get Daniel Strauss, and you're going to get a featherweight title defense, uh, from one of the Pitbull brothers. So like, uh, you know, come for Kimbo versus Shamrock, stay for Michael Chandler and, and, uh, Patricio Ferrer. Yeah, and this is one of those things, too, that 
it, it's weird because usually for me, Bellator is not necessarily appointment viewing, uh, you might say. I mean, I, I'll always DVR it. And if there's somebody really interesting, then I'll try to sit down in time for that card. But since there's a UFC almost every Saturday night that I usually have to work, and since Friday is usually a day off for me, it's usually one of those things where I've got other stuff going on on Friday, and so I'll catch up with it later or catch up with one fight here or there. And this successfully does turn Bellator into uh, appointment viewing. You look at that that whole main card there, and there's kind of enough everywhere you look that you don't want to be out of your seat for any one of those fights. And it's a, a mix of like, okay, some legitimate good fights, good matchups, and then just crazy shit. And I, I mean, you hesitate to say like that Bellator has found the formula for, for how to get fans to watch, but it's at least found the formula for how to get fans to watch some MMA that is not the UFC, which is something people have struggled with for a long time. And I mean, the, this this clearly is working. Like you can't argue with the number, the ratings that that they're pulling with some of this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's kind of an uncomfortable truth. It I is. You would say that if Bellator tries really hard to put on good mixed martial arts fights and build its own stars, that we look at the the fight card for that week and and think, eh, I'll put it on the DVR, and if anything interesting happens, I'll watch it yeah. later. If they go merely for carnival shock value. I can put Ken Shamrock and Kimbo Slice out there. Then suddenly everyone's got it circled on their calendars and, and you know, we act like we're all in sixth grade again. We're super excited about this one. Uh, let me ask you this though. Like, what are we really expecting to see in this fight? Because I'm excited. I'm going to watch it as long as my wife is not actively in labor on Friday night. And, uh, yet when I th- really think about it, I'm like, Boy, this one could also be very, very bad in the same way Tito Ortiz versus Stefan Bonner was not a good fight, but scored enormous ratings. Yeah, see, but that's the thing. I think the expectations for that are such that it's hard to feel like a like as long as the fight happens. Uh, I feel like it's, it's hard to, for Bellator to feel like this was a failure. Like even if it, if it is a shitty fight, it's not like people were expecting the actual level of martial arts on display to be super high. Like that's not what people are, are showing up for. I mean, we're really showing up for some kind of like, you know, schadenfreude, a little bit of man's inhumanity to man and just like black comedy, uh, pretty much like people ex- like almost want this to be a shitty, weird fight you know like it, something bizarre has got to happen like if, if we go out there and kimbo slice lands a jab that knocks out ken shamrock in the first 12 seconds people would be like yeah that was one of the things i thought could happen and i feel satisfied with that outcome if they just end up like super tired like hands on knees wheezing at each other in the later rounds people will feel the same way about that and i think like it's found that's part of the the appeal for for Bellator to some of the fans is like they're like okay Kimbo Slice versus Ken Shamrock let me open up my Twitter app and get ready to make fun of this shit but I'm totally gonna watch. Can you imagine if this doesn't happen? Like if <laughs> yes, I can. I can. I have not really that hard a time imagining it. What a man that would be kind of perfect. And if you're Bellator, you have to have Seth Petrozelli, right? You have to have him on standby. You think he's on if, retainer right if now? If you could get Kimbo Slice to sign to fight him, if something unforeseen should happen to Ken Shamrock, you have to have Seth Petrozelli. Yeah, you you pretty much do. I don't know if if you could convince Kimbo to fight him, but man, that would be wild. I think I just came up with my perfect expectation for this weekend. <laughs> so what you're saying, your perfect scenario... 
Um, Ken Shamrock suffers, let's say, a mysterious ankle sprain this time. Something you got to do something different. It's his foot run over by his mobile home. Okay, <laughs> has to pull out of the fight, and maybe we don't hear about it until Kimbo's already in the cage. And then we just start playing Seth Petrozelli's entrance music, whatever that might be. Yeah, I imagine something by Faith No More. But, uh, you know, whatever. All right, well, Ben, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then uh, we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Well, Chad, as you may have heard recently, Mark Hunt uh, told an interesting tale about seeing what might have been the devil or a demon or a grim reaper. I read about it, yes. As I believe he described it, uh, in his dying father's hospital room, more or less, what he described as like a 20 foot tall, uh, grim reaper that he said he did not look directly at because he knew it would kill him, uh, and saw it out of the, are you okay? Yeah, no, I'm fine. Uh, He's seen it four times, four different times in his life. Um, so I saw the thing from the side and my mind goes, what the hell is that thing? And it was huge, like 20 feet tall and it was hooded and it was holding something. And the feeling that I got from it, the thing, I was like, wow, that thing's crazy. That thing there is certainly here to collect this guy right here in front of me. And I'll never forget that. I'm just saying, if that is a thing that happened to you and you're, you're convinced of that, Maybe be careful who you tell that to and when. Just, I'm just, that's just me talking out loud there saying maybe you don't want to use that one as like, you know, if you're sitting down with Jimmy Fallon or something and you're supposed to have a good <laughs> anecdote, uh, to, to entertain people with, maybe your story about the time out of the peripheral vision you saw a 20 foot tall grim reaper in your father's hospital room isn't the story you just want to throw out in mixed company. You might want to keep that with close friends yeah that's not just one for, for the first date yeah just saying well ben we already talked about the gloriousness of seeing nate diaz reemerge from hiding uh earlier in the show this week i'm just saying that the major technological advance that i would like to see from future ufc broadcasts it's i want there to be a button that i can push either on my remote control or on my computer or on my phone that makes a little box appear in the corner of my screen that's just nate and over or Nick Diaz talking about whatever is happening. Okay. I, I, I don't want them to be like UFC on Fox anchors, though that that would be hilarious. Uh, I don't want them to have their own show on the fightpass.com. I just want to be able to push a button and have this little box appear and then hear their thoughts just on whatever whatever is happening. Imagine, Ben, how this would revolutionize UFC viewing. You would no longer have to listen to one of those Heidi Andral interviews with Marcus Davis. Instead of that, you could just turn on Diaz vision and hear Nate Diaz's ideas about what Marcus Davis is wearing and the questions that Heidi Andral is asking. I think it would be amazing. Could there be some times where you'd just turn on Diaz vision and it would turn out that they had decided to talk about something completely unrelated to Absolutely. what was on the TV? Yes, that would be half the fun. Sometimes you would push Diaz button and it would just be a blank screen. You'd be like, oh, they're not there. <laughs> they're, they're like when out. you're looking at like a web stream of like eagles in a nest and sometimes you go there and the eagles have flown away. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Like a webcam of eagles in a nest. That's exactly what I want, except it's Nate Diaz and Nick Diaz. 
basically telling me their thoughts about whatever's happening. Just saying. Would watch. Would watch. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at this Fight Pass show from Berlin. Uh, and then look ahead to the next Fight Pass show from Berlin, which I assume is the next weekend. <laughs> sure it is. Right? I'm just going to stick around. Uh, so we'll do that. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. I feel like at times Diaz vision, the, the, the appeal would be as soon as you get the audio feed of it, how long do you think it might take you to figure out what they're actually talking about? Because I feel like you could, you could, you might come into a conversation and then spend the next six minutes with Diaz Vision and still not be sure what's happening. I think the only danger of Diaz Vision is that it would become ubiquitous and would eventually take over our lives. Can you imagine watching Game 5 of the NBA Finals and Steph Curry drains a long three, pop open Diaz Vision? Cue what Nate Diaz has to say.